Hello and welcome to Hjalte Sonstein, the podcast show that delves into all things CNS, ATM and ATSEP, with me, your host, Edward Fullerton. In this episode, we'll be joined by Troy Buckley, an experienced professional of our industry. We're going to be talking about the challenges faced in relation to ATSEPs and also delving into the ins and outs of CNS and ATM and how they are impacting our industry. So to kick things off, I'd firstly like to welcome Troy to the episode and ask the question, how did you find yourself as a young boy in the world of air traffic engineering? So Troy, over to you. Um, so yeah, we're going back quite a way now, Eddie. It's going back um, all the way to 1981, and um, my attestation date into the Royal Air Force, March the 10th, 1981, and uh, I went off to do my basic training at RF Swinderby, which is long closed, and then um, I went to Royal Air Force Locking and uh, joined the uh, LMEC AF course um in in, uh, in 1981 and um it's a good question i've always i was always interested in um in electronics in mechanics electromechanical stuff my grandfather was in the remi and um and i used to spend an awful lot of time um fixing cars and fixing electrics on cars and doing that sort of stuff so um yeah, my my career in the Royal Air Force wasn't really by accident. I don't suppose I was. I always wanted to do something along those lines, and I, I always had an interest in in airfields and aeroplanes and all that sort of stuff. So it seemed like a natural progression to go into the Royal Air Force and go into into that sort of a trade. It was a bit of a toss up between uh, the ground trades and the uh, and the avionics, um, and sometimes I think it would have been a better option for me to go into the avionics side and actually work on aircraft. I think I think that trade would have opened a lot more options for me. Um, I think, uh, you know, working on the CNS assets, comms, nav, surveillance, it can be quite niche and and you're limited. You're, you're limited to, you know, your options are limited. So, so, I mean, yeah, so going all the way back to 1981 when I joined the Royal Air Force and went on, on my first uh, uh, training course at RF Locking. So would you agree with me uh, when I say that I think the, the, the job that we do now, now like ATSEPs or whatever you want to call it, CNS, ATM, um, back then, I, even when I joined up, I had no idea about this job. So I was I was like you. I went to the Royal Air Force uh, in the UK to inquire about avionics, and then they put me into ATE, which I was like, "Well, what's that? Air traffic engineering?" I had no idea. Yeah, I, I, I did. I did have a. I mean, I did have a bit of an idea um, because I had relatives that had served in the Air Force before, and um, yeah. So, I mean, I. I had a very, very high level overview of, as to what it was all about. I mean, um, I, I wasn't any sort of an expert or or SWAT about it. I mean, that just comes with training and experience. But yeah, I, I was. I think I was pretty aware of what I was getting myself into. It was. It was. It was by choice. Yeah. Yeah. I when I went to the careers office, then my uh, intention was like avionics. I knew what that was. 
that was working on airplanes. Um, I wanted to be technical, same as you, um, because like you, I like tinkering with things. My dad was a fisherman, so he had a big, huge, big deep sea trawler and used to take home things like valves and lechabars and stuff like this. And that was in my toy cupboard. So I was like always tinkering around with things. Some things now I know were radioactive and I really shouldn't have been playing with. Um, but at the time as a kid, I mean, they're probably still in my mum and dad's house on the loft, these radioactive valves and things. But, um, you know, the but even nowadays, um, there's no real direct route into this industry. And historically, it was from the military. That's where we got our staff from. And that doesn't even exist anymore because the military are not recruiting into um, the trade group three, as we used to call it, which was the uh, Grand Trade Electronics um, for ATC. So it's a it's quite a difficult one when you look at the concept of the the ATSEP, how it's been um, regulated and how it's being enforced now by many ANSBs and regulators around the world. So we must do this, we must do that, and but we have a big issue. With I don't know how you felt in your previous positions about things like recruitment and retention. You know, we get these staff and eventually we can recruit staff and we train them up in, and it's expensive to train an asset, very expensive. Get them highly qualified, highly motivated, and then it's difficult to keep them, or it can be. And, and that I find is a bit of a challenge. I don't know, uh, have you sort of got any thoughts on that? Well, yeah, I, I quite agree with you, actually. it's um, I mean, when I was a group engineering manager working for Nats, um, I worked with um, three or four other guys. And we used to go out and do roadshows and uh, try and attract uh, staff um, from colleges and, um, and schools uh, to go into the profession. And, and we actually uh, got quite a few... Um, people interested and, and quite a few of them actually joined up and uh, passed all the assessments and tests and actually uh, went on to become ATSEPs or air traffic engineers as, as Nats calls them. So, but you're quite right. Um, it's expensive uh, to train uh, staff into into the ATSEP role. Um, it can be a problem to, to retain staff if the reward and recognition scheme isn't suitable enough to actually keep those people on board. Um, and that's is probably one of the only organisations in the UK that actually can afford to do that. Can actually put afford to put people through through. They've got they've got enough of an organisation that they can afford to have like uh, an academy style recruitment process. And a small small independent airports uh, just can't do that. And and that's where we used to get our people from from the military predominantly. And and I even now. Um, when I go around different airports and different uh, areas, um, sovereign air territories, people ask me, well, how do, how do you get into it? I haven't got the answer. And I find, that I find that concerning because I meet people who want to do it. Only today I had a conversation with a girl and she wants to do this job, but she doesn't know how. And to be honest with you, either do I. Because every regulator is different. Yeah, it's, it, it's tricky. And I think, you know, there is there is still potentially the military route because the, the military are trained. It doesn't have to be Royal Air Force. It could be it could be Navy. It could potentially be uh, REMI. Um, and also, of course, the Merchant Marine used to have radio officers and they would uh, they would be trained in that sort of thing. But that's I think that's finished now. So, 
Yeah, the I think maybe potentially there's the apprenticeship scheme. Um, so local authorities could get staff in uh, through some sort of an apprenticeship scheme. But it's it's hard. And it's, I mean, if you look at the demographic of uh, air traffic engineers or ATSEP, certainly in the UK, um, we're all we're all getting pretty long in the tooth. I mean, it's you know you're talking about guys and girls that uh, at least in their fifties now. The majority of people are in their fifties, and having you know young people coming into the trade now, um, it's it's difficult to get those people through. It really is. And you know we talked about Nats, and um, you know Nats is a, is a great organisation to work for, um, but they pay very very well. So it's not as if you're going to leave a large organization like National Air Traffic Services and go and work for a regional airport for probably two-thirds of the wage. You know, it's just not going to happen. So it's it's going to be the regional airports that are going to struggle, really, um, with retaining their staff. I mean, what I, what I find when I travel is once we get people in the door and then if you've got good management to sort of uh, encourage them and everything, once you get them, they start to see the the width and breadth of the task. And it is so varied, so, so varied and requires so many skills to do the job, especially on the shop floor. I mean, one day you could be working on a piece of a piece of 1980s equipment with valves. The next day you could be programming a like a, a computer based digital system. The skills required are massive. And when they see that and and the the variance in technologies, and then you do get like interest comes and they start to get hungry for it, um, which is good for, I like to see that because that's how I remember that. I, I love nothing better than, you know, going somewhere and say, oh, we have this equipment, but it's really old. Straight away when they say that to me, it's like, oh, good. You know, it's proper, proper stuff. But it is hard. When you talk about old equipment, I remember my days back at RAF locking and um, the old um, uh, oh, Mercury Art Rectifier. You remember the, mer- the big Mercury Art Rectifier with a, a bowl of mercury? size The size of like a big, big football with a paddle inside. And um, we, we had to wear goggles when we were shown it because of the... Uh, because of the light would, would burn your eyes. And this thing would form an arc and a huge flash and a bang and off it would go and convert, um, convert to, to, to DC. But an amazing piece of equipment. I mean, you can look at it online now. Yeah, the, the only yeah. thing I can remember from my days at locking, so for the listeners, I also went to RDF Locking after I did my recruitment, which also has long since closed. Um, but the only thing I remember there with Mercury in it really was, and we were warned about it, was they had the old uh, tilt switch in the glide slope um, for in case the mast moved. And that was how basic that was back then, because if the mast moved, the Mercury moved, and then it would break the connection and then the, the system would shut down. Um, I, rem- I remember that on the old uh, DN811, I think it was. I'm, I'm not 100% sure. It's a long time ago. Um, even for me, it's what, 20, 24 years ago now since I was at Locking, I think. Yeah, 24, 25 years ago. It really does. But when you think about all those, um, like the, the challenges put to ATSEPS, one of my main concerns is I feel that a lot of work has to go into giving the ATSEPS, the CNS engineers, the ATM guys, uh, and our specialists I think they deserve more recognition. 
they are unseen, unheard of. I mean, every airport around the world has a team of engineers behind the scenes, keeping all this stuff going, feeding the information to the controllers. Controllers work, uh, not diminishing their work at all. Everybody is a key cog in the machine. But a lot of the information is being fed from our systems now up to the ATM systems on the screen so the controllers have it at their fingertips. And one of my missions through what I'm trying to do here is to bring a, um, a focus onto the, the role of what we call as like our industry. Well, I think, I mean, my take on that, Eddie, is, is you know, we, we are the backroom boys and girls. You know, the engineers always were in the background. We never really had uh, much of a face, a public face. Um, we we never, never really had. And I think part of that is probably down to the fact that um, we're not licensed. Um, we know we don't require a license. We don't need, we have to be competent, of course. We have to be trained and competent as per, um, you know, the, the, the correct uh, regulatory documentation. But I think unless, unless it actually is pushed through um, and it's uh, recommended um, in the ICAO documentation, then I, I think it's going to be a tricky, a tricky subject to actually um, bring ourselves to the forefront uh, because unless you know, we're, we're physically required um, from a regulatory perspective to, to hold a license, then it's, it's, going, to be, it's going to be a tricky, um, a tricky objective to actually start bringing ourselves out to the fore. And, and do you know what? I, just my personal opinion, I actually like being in the background. I don't, I don't particularly want to be, you know... It, it, in, in, in the forefront of everybody's attention. I'd rather be in the background. I would personally would rather be in the background sorting things out, making things happen, putting processes in place, making sure the operation runs smoothly, making sure everybody's competent, safe, etc., etc., etc. I mean, I'm, I'm more than happy to talk to the press and talk to audiences and, and explain to them what we do. And I've done that many times in the past. But sometimes then I just like to fade into the background and let somebody else take Take, take the limelight. I think it is important for the role to be known that it exists. Um, yeah. And and with the formation or and the sort of uh, standardization, shall we say, it's not, like you say, not licensed, but we have standardized a lot in how things are done. And countries are buying into that by themselves um, due to the regulators because um, in the in the IKEA documents, it's a, it's a guideline. And it says that it is up to individual ANSPs or regulators, whoever's the, the ultimate authority in that area, as to whether they adopt a licensing system or not. And I don't know anywhere which has adopted a formal licensing system, but I know many places adopted the PTC, the Personal Training Certificate um, route, which is basically the same, but without the accountability. Mm. I think there are some ANSPs that have gone down the licensing route. I, um, I'm pretty sure. I can't think of who they are off the top of my head, but I remember looking at this maybe a couple of years ago, and I'm sure I'm sure there's a, at least one European country that's gone down the licensing route, and I think quite a few of the African states have as well. Looking at the role of the ATSEP then, um, in your experience, and looking back to what it was before, like grand radio mechanic, grand radio technician, or air traffic engineer, whatever we used to call them, 
do you see any significant differences from like when you started to now in in the people? Uh, not not so much in the people. No, not so much in the people. I think I think the people are pretty much the same. You know, engineers, technicians, uh, mechanics. Um, you know, we're, st- we're still the, we're still the same people. I think the change has been around uh, the regulation, around competency, around training, around a lot of the safety processes that have been put in place. Um, certainly, in the last, I mean, I've been working in, in air traffic engineering for over forty years now, and and I I see a huge difference in in uh, the way that um, uh, equipment is. Uh, transitioned into service um, with regard to safety cases, making sure that ATSEPs are trained and competent. Um, and, and of course, that all that is documented. Uh, regulatory oversight, um, that that's changed significantly, I would say, in, in the past 40 years. Absolutely. I mean, going back to the, to the 70s and 80s, um, it would be the guy that... Um, you know, repaired your TV. He would probably go into into sort of like a civvy civvy role of, of you know, fixing radar and comms and radios and things like that because they were technically competent. They could read a circuit diagram. They could fault find. You know, so you go and do a, a, a week's course on something or other, and, and lo and behold, you're now competent. And um, yeah, so so I think I think the people the people are the same. You know, we're still we're still technically competent. But I think it's the it's all of the checks and balances that are in place now, which which is that's where the significant changes come, and that's and and that's good. I'm 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 pleased about that. I mean, you know, I mean, I, I do a lot of work in um, in safety and quality as well, and when I look at the the, the Swiss cheese model, you know, yeah. all the all the holes lining up, and when you don't have those lines of defence in place with regard to your documentation, your processes. Uh, the dual systems in place, competency of staff, training of staff, safety cases, risk assessments, management of change. When you don't have those things in place, it makes those holes or the lining up of those holes so much easier. So it's, in my opinion, it's it's a much, much, much better environment to work in now. So from a human factors perspective, you know, the, the, the environment has changed, the culture has changed. Which is which is great. The only problem is with aviation when there is an incident, it's global news. But looking at that, then there must be something that uh, there's been so many new regulations come in. There's been some retracted as well. Um, is there anything that you can think of that you've sort of seen come across your desk, especially when you're in the management role? You've read through it and you've been like, "This isn't going to work," and then maybe a year later, it's been retracted or significantly changed. I think I was. I mean, when when the, the whole ATSEP, um, you know, the basic qualification, basic the basic training, then the qualification streams, when when that was all um, floated, um, I did I did think to myself, you know, is this going to be done retrospectively? Are people going to hold grandfather rights for what they've already what they're already qualified in? I I, I did have my doubts as to how it was going to be implemented and and that was really around um the costs involved of of the atsep training because we we got into this a little bit earlier but 
the, the costs involved of bringing new staff in and pushing them through the ATSEP training, uh, the basic, then the qualification streams. I mean, when I was working on regional airports, I was working on my own. I had to pretty much, if I had an electrical supply to it, I fixed it. And I, I, would, I would have had to have done all of the qualification streams, comms, nav, surveillance, data processing, um, probably not SMC because we didn't have an SMC. Um, I would have had to have done all of them if I was going to be uh, trained to work in that environment. And it's really, really expensive. So I think to come back to your question, I think when, when the whole ATSEP um, concept was floated and around the training requirements, I thought, well, this is going to be costly. This is going to be prohibitive for um, regional airports, airports that are operating on a shoestring already. Um, how is it going to work? I mean, it, it has worked. Well, thankfully, it's not um, it's not been uh, retrospectively applied. If staff are actually competent and signed off, they have their own personal technical certificates already, and they're signed off as being competent, then you don't have to revisit the training, um, as far as I'm aware. Anyway, not in all states. So I, th- I think that was that was probably. Um, one of the major concerns around our specific industry that had me worried for a while and how that was going to work. And then the whole push around licensing as well, as opposed to just having a PTC, whether there were going to be costs involved in that from a licensing perspective. Because looking at things from a management perspective, you're always walking a tightrope between um, safety and service. You're trying to provide the best possible service that you can, but you've got to do it within the budgetary constraints of your department or or your organization. So sending maybe three or four staff off to go and do basic ATSEP training, is it going to be too costly? Is it going to be prohibitively costly? Is it going to, you know, bust your budget? Are you going to have to sacrifice uh, other courses to get through the, the mandatory courses? And it's all about maintaining, maintaining. Say so you can't you can't maintain safety to the detriment of your budget because obviously the organisation will go broke. Um, but you've got you've got to balance the two, and it's yeah. it's it's sometimes very very tricky. It is. It's like you say. It's a balancing act, and and not only that, but sending people on courses in a small airport is difficult because of manpower. You know, do you, if you've got a two week course that and you release one of your engineers, what if somebody else goes sick at that time? You know, it's a significant uh, challenge for for smaller airports and and authorities. It really is. But I think we, some of that, like you touched on it there as well, which is the the whole granddad rights and all that. We sort of, in time, we've developed this sort of way where the competency doesn't travel with you competency is at the airport you're at your qualifications or your streams go with you and your p if you have ptc yeah. and then when you get to a new yeah. airport you are re word competency assessed um, type, type type rated is uh, is challenging from a competency perspective talking about the unit type ratings is who who is going to be ojti who's going to do the assessor role yeah you know you've got a small team maybe you've got only three four five people if you're lucky um including your manager um you're going to have potentially you're going to have a conflict of interest if you're if you're training um an atsep on a on a type that say it's on the i don't know on the ils system 
and you've you've trained the guy. You're you're the OJTI. Who is then going to be the assessor? Yeah, it shouldn't be the you person know, that trains them. No. no. Anyway, yeah, there's there there are lots of obstacles um, for us to, uh, to 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 overcome for sure. And I think I think it's it's probably only going to get worse. Um, uh, I think there's uh, there's going to be a void, same as they've got a void yeah. with uh, air traffic controllers now and uh, an airline pilots. I think in the next few years we're going to see a void with regard to ATSEPs, um engineers working on on airports on the on the comms nav- navigation surveillance assets. I think there's going to unless that unless that training is kicked off in the next you know, two or three years, I think there's going to be a big gap there. There's going to be a shortage of, of air traffic engineers, of ATSEPs. Um, and I don't know how that's going to be filled, to be honest with you, because as you say, there's there's there aren't the people coming through the military um, that they used to be. Um, there's not the people coming through the civilian side that um, that they used to be anymore. So it's, it's going to be a problem for us. And also the financial constraints. I mean, I don't know if you've been aware of it in uh, some of the locations you've been, but quite recently, what seems to be coming to the forefront is um, with the digitalization of a lot of our equipment, airports, um, again, I won't mention any uh, names, but I have witnessed it uh, it's beginning to employ more and more IT help desk, but they're actually mm. touching ATM equipment, which is not, in my opinion, not right. It's a loophole they can do, but mm. uh, you know we have data processing as one of the streams for a reason. Um, and the thing is, yes, they can pro- they can work on the switches and all the you know the routers and and the servers and all that. They can work on them physically. But the thing is, do they have the understanding of the uh, what the effects can be if they get it wrong or if they switch something off? Because we can't just switch. A massive part of our job is actually the transfer of responsibility from ATCO to engineering. You know, when we have the equipment under our control, we can do with it what we want, pretty much. But then it's the transfer between the two uh, accountabilities that's important. Yeah, yeah, I know exactly what you mean. I mean, it should be, it should be the the service delivery point. So, I mean, with regard to especially data communication, let's let's just talk about um, surveillance, for example. There'll be a service delivery point, um, and the ATSEP accountability goes up to that service delivery point and after that then it could be it could be the network service provider it could, it could be whoever but it has to be defined and it has to be within the safety case um, you know where that where that point of transfer is and if people are working who aren't competent on that particular asset before the, the service delivery point then obviously that's that's a problem that's I mean and and that should be picked up um, if you have a, a, a good safety department or a good quality department. They should they should be picking that stuff up. I think it's being done for financial for financial reasons. I mean, historically, the service delivery point was basically the chrome panel. You know, it was yeah. the that was yeah. where it was for everything. But but yeah. it's it's crept beyond that into the racks now. Um, you know, with networking mm. and everything. I mean. The way we're going with automation now and uh, with with AI, I mean, when I was when I first joined NATS National Air Traffic Services, I worked in the service management centre there. I worked probably three, maybe three or four years in there. And there's no reason why you can't 
have remote uh, control and monitoring of assets um, from a central control room. I know I know that some airports have actually farmed that out now, and you you have a, a group of engineers um, that travel to airports to service the CNS assets as and when they're required. Now, don't get me wrong. This is down to a budget. This is a budgetary decision. And, you know, I mean, I, I've, I've put service level agreements in place before in, in numerous places. And when you go to the customer and say to the customer at ATC, say, okay, what would you like? Would you like a gold-plated okay. service? You want uh, assets um, restored uh, within an hour of failure? Um, you know, what, what, what do you want? And they always come back and say, okay, we want everything working 100% all the time. Okay, that's fine. So that's going to cost you this much. And it's, you know, arms arms are really spread out. It's going to cost you this much. Oh, we can't afford that. Okay, so never mind what you want. What do you actually need? Okay, well, we've got resilience in our comms because we've got backups. We've got resilience in our electricity generation because we've got generators. Uh, we've got multiple uh, radar feeds coming in. Um, so actually... There are critical services and there are non-critical services. Okay, so with regard to your critical services, you've got resilience in those, of course. So if you lose one transmitter or, or, or you've got your standby, if you lose the frequency, you've got a standby frequency. Yeah, okay, so we could probably live without that for maybe two or three hours whilst, whilst you fix that. Okay, now we're getting somewhere. My point is, Eddie, that when you're trying to balance the cost of provision, gold-plated provision of service with what is actually required, what is actually needed uh, from a safety perspective. There's always a compromise. There's always going to be a compromise. And a lot of uh, ANSPs now, I know, are looking at remote control and monitoring of assets and dispatching engineers as and when they're required. And with yeah. modern equipment uh, now being so resilient, um, it doesn't break down as often as it used to. I mean, when you and I were doing our training or first went into, into work in the Royal Air Force, we were having to fix kit probably once or twice a week. You know, things were breaking down all the time. So you're always hands-on. You knew it back to front. Now, it doesn't. Now, it, it, it's, so, it's so reliable that you never, ever really get to do any proper fault-finding on it. So, so, you know, farming that stuff out remotely and just having a team of engineers based regionally to go and fix stuff as and when it breaks is a, is a model that a lot of, um, a lot of ANSPs are now looking at. And, and to get back to one of the other elements of competency, uh, which is recency, recency on assets. If you haven't worked on an asset for six months or 18 months, when do you stop being competent to work on it? And that depends on the complexity of the asset, of course. It depends on, on all sorts of things, all sorts of criteria, which we haven't got time to get into here. But if you're, if you're working on an airport, and maybe there's three or four of you working on an airport, and all you're ever doing is routine maintenance, um, things aren't breaking down, you're not having to work on it, you're not going to be um, uh, as competent as, uh, as somebody that's working on it all the time. So if you're, if you're Joe Bloggs, based down at Heathrow, and you're covering all of the south of England, and you're out on the road pretty much every day of the week, you're going to be working on that kit a lot more. You're going to be more competent. 
than somebody that only ever touches it once a year. So there is a there is a there is a model there, and that's why our systems are designed the way they are. For every every asset, you yeah. know, whether it's an ILS, a DME, a VOR, um, surveillance, whatever it is, okay, go through the flow chart. And this is in, in the service level agreement. So when something when something fails, they, they pull the flow chart out. It's in this service level agreement. They go through the steps uh, and, and just it, it tells them what to do. They don't have to remember it. 90% of the time it says do nothing. Wait till the shift arrive in the morning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's always there's always the caveat that um, you know. So you, you can put the service level agreement in place with AT between ATE and, and ATC, and there's always the caveat: if the watch manager wants to call you out, they can call you out. If they feel it's important enough to call you out, they will call you out. If they want you to come in because they're worried about something which isn't covered, they they can call you in. Yeah, we spoke a bit there. We've covered quite a lot in about the ATSEPs and everything. But I was looking at the information that you sent me through, um, and one of the things I, I asked you about was if you had a particularly challenging sort of experience in your career, um, something mm-hmm. that really pushed you, you know. And I mean, for for me, my my challenging time was actually my transition from military to civil because I changed from military and went into a civil airport, thinking it would be the same. <laughs> boy, boy, was I wrong. But I had to pretend. So I had to... Yeah. The the uh, IKEA was my best friend. I mean, it was my nightmare, but I was my nose was in the IKEA books the whole time because I, suddenly I didn't have APs. I had IKEA's yeah. books. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. But is there anything that's really... What's your most challenging sort of experience you've had? Um, I think this one's pretty easy, to be honest with you, um, for me to talk about. Maybe not so easy for me to talk about, but um, easily recognisable as the most challenging event in my career. And that was whilst I was working in the Middle East um, in, a, in a senior engineering position. And um, the whole of the expat management team, there must have been about eight or nine of us, um, over a period of about 12 months, we were replaced uh, by, by local staff. So basically, we were, we were um, asked to leave our positions. And um, uh, so I was probably, what, uh, yeah, early 50s, early 50s. Never, ever, ever been made redundant, never been fired, never even had a letter of... Um, like, uh, you know, disciplinary letter, anything at all in my career ever. And all of a sudden, I found myself um, actually suspended from duty um, because I was being replaced by, by a local. And, and that happened to all of us over, over a, period of, a period of time. And in hindsight, it was, it was really stressful um, thinking that I was going to be out of work with no way to support uh, my, my wife and, uh, and my children, etc. Um, and then an opportunity presented itself um, to actually move into like a, not, not a, a side discipline, but um, to move into, into safety and, uh, and quality and start to get my head around all of the 
all of the processes and things that are actually required um, in detail um, to actually transition assets into service, transition assets out of service. So if we look at um, uh, the ICAO doc 9859, uh, the, four, the four corners. So it's pol policy and process, um, it's management of risk, it's uh, assurance and safety promotion. Yeah. Anyway, so those those are the four. So so get so so getting into that and actually going out and rolling out that that, that across the Circo estate and and learning all of that stuff in detail. And I learned an awful lot. Um, I mean, I was in my early fifties, and there was stuff there which I, I wasn't aware of. I really wasn't aware of. You know. So yeah. You know. I mean. The, uh, uh, the, uh, the management management of change process. I mean, we knew about it, we were aware of it, but actually implementing it properly is it can be quite onerous. Safety cases, putting proper safety cases in place. Yeah. So that so so moving into quality and safety for me uh, was uh, was a bit like the, the the cloud had a silver lining. So even though I'd lost a senior a senior position, I moved into another discipline, um, learnt an awful lot about it over a period of of uh, three or four years and um, and then unfortunately that position <coughs> uh, was made redundant as well and I ended up in, in Baghdad um, uh, working uh, as a CNS uh, consultant and then quality and safety manager in, in Baghdad so that led on to other things so uh, Baghdad was yeah Baghdad was uh, challenging in, at times I've worked across the Middle East in a, in a lot of the countries and um... I mean I've worked I've worked in many many different countries now for even short times and I always say to people now that actually don't judge a book by its cover because quite often the the airports that you get to that people assume are going to be the most challenging are not because they're not hiding anything mm. sometimes it's yeah. the ones that appear to be perfect which turn out to be the most challenging um, because. They, they've got everything so well hidden. They're so good at it. And But if you go yeah. to an airport which uh, or an ANSP which, you know, wears its flag on its sleeve, um, you know what you're getting. And you mm. have honesty and you and they want to be better. So usually, I mean, from my, that's from my experience, is, is actually it can be quite quite good. You're quite right. Um, so I, I visited places where I thought everything would be um, not perfect, but pretty much, you know, regulated. Um, and, and unfortunately, a lot, a lot of places where you think, yeah, this, this should be spot on. It, it's not, it's not at all. But uh, on that note then, where would you say, even if it was just for a, a, a short two weeks, where's your favourite place you've been sent to for work? Oof, I actually think probably New Zealand. Yeah, Wellington, New Zealand, South Island. Yeah, I'd really, really liked it. I was I was I was there only there for about a week, um, just after the earthquake. Um, but it was like going back in time, maybe fifty years. And yeah, yeah I, I actually think do you know I I actually applied for a job to, to go and to go and work there, but it didn't it didn't work out, it didn't pan out. But um, yeah, I think New Zealand. I, I I really like New Zealand. Seychelles. Oof. Everything about it was just perfect. To see turtles swim past your room and dolphins jumping was just yeah. fantastic. Yeah. Are there any ideas which you think may have been overlooked or maybe just sidelined, which you believe could transform this industry for the better? I think I actually think that's I think it's been I think it's been done. I mean, 
I think for me, the transformation happened during COVID and we started to go online and we started to do everything remotely. A lot of things are done remotely. And I think that that's something which has been in the background, slowly, slowly, slowly happening. But I think since, um, since the COVID uh, pandemic, I think that that migration to working remotely, accessing um, stuff remotely, fixing things remotely, chatting to people remotely. I mean, for example, there's no reason why I couldn't be at home. You could be at your at your house. We could be having a chat, and you you're logged into an asset, and I'm telling you, as maybe maybe I've got the depth the depth uh, B competency in it, and and for some reason I can't get in. I can tell you how to do it. You know, so it's, it's, it's about doing things remotely, doing things smartly, doing things more efficiently. Um, and I think I think we're actually in a in a flux at the minute. I think we're starting to see a lot of this stuff with artificial intelligence coming online and about how we can do things a, a lot more efficiently, a lot more smarter um, from from the leisure of, uh, of an office or, or our own uh, workspace at home. And, and I mean, you'll know this because you're probably teaching at SEP online as well now. So, so there's no reason why, you know, that sort of thing can't be done. The only thing that I think would probably um, still require the face-to-face is the type rating on assets actually in the field, you know. So if you're going to go and work at, at Manchester Airport and you're going to be fixing their, their, their ILS, their whichever type it is you, 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 I don't think you can get around that you can actually watch videos of people fixing it and doing servicing but you've actually got to go and do it yourself get the hands on I think you're you're right there and because COVID did speed all that up um, yeah. during your illustrious career um, of spanning nearly four decades as you said um, what's the one thing that you've done <laughs> at any one time that you wish never happened um, and you just like it's like either stupid thing you made a silly mistake but we all do them um, I was think it's good to share them with people because then if somebody else does it they'll feel okay to tell I think probably one of the daftest things that I ever did was uh, walking into um, walking into the glide slope one morning um, when it was icy and um, <laughs> with with my with my boots on, um, with my PPE boots on and all my cold weather gear and everything, and I think there'd been a leak in the cabin as well, and the floor was the floor was icy. Um, no, the room was heated, but it's, they still managed to form some ice. The wind had been blowing under the door. Anyway, I skated, I skated across the floor, landed <laughs> flat up against the um, the glide slope uh, control panel, and turned the bloody thing off. <laughs> Shut it down. I think I switched between transmitter A and trans- transmitter B whilst I was trying to hold myself up or whatever, and it went down for, for 30 seconds whilst there was a KLM on final. So, so. It happens. We all, I mean, I've done my fair share of stupid things because when I was really young and first joined, like first started, and I was super naive. I was like, they could, you know what the Air Force is like? They like to wind you up. And because it was senior people, I was like, even when I thought they're winding me up, I still did it. But one time I didn't, and I feel stupid about this now because I I, I was adamant that they were winding me up. Yeah. 
and that was the to measure the grass at the glide slope. So I'm not going going out to the glide slope with a ruler. Oh right. I was like, this yeah. is taking the mech. So I went out in the car, yeah. went and got a bacon sandwich or something, sat and ate mm. it, went back and told them yeah. the grass was two meters long. And then they're like, what? <laughs> and then, of course, I got in trouble because I'd faked doing the servicing. Right. <laughs> but I was like, I genuinely thought, I said, last uh, yesterday you sent me to uh, stores to get dilithium yeah. crystals. I said, mm -hmm. I stood there for an hour. I was like, I know you're winding me up, but I'm, I'm like an LAC. I just do as you tell me. <laughs> so I thought this time I'm not doing it. Uh, the other one I did was SSR servicing. Me and a very experienced yeah. junior technician uh, yeah. who now lives in the United States, and I know she listens to this podcast and she will know who I'm talking about. Um, we're servicing the SSR at Linton-on-Ouse in Yorkshire and decided to get the big heavy drum of oil up the tower the easy way, which was put it on the hoist. And we started hoisting it up with the automatic hoist and it got about three quarters of the way up the tower until the handle gave way mm -hmm. on the drum. And it was like slow motion. We just watched this drum of oil just plummet the whole height of the tower. And then it hit the bottom with an almighty bang. Not a drop of oil came out, but we had to go back to work with a drum which looked like a pancake, completely compressed, decompressed. It was like... And that, that was just like out of laziness. And these sort of things, you learn, you never do it again. I would never put a drum of oil on a hoist again, but I learned. So if mm. you're listening, you know who you are. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, if there's, I think we've spoke for about an hour now. <laughs> um, yeah. And I feel yeah. like we've got some good, good stuff shared there and some good relevant points about some of the challenges and and the developments um, in the industry at the moment. And uh, so on that point, um, Troy, I'd like to thank you for being our first inaugural guest on Hjalta Sonstein podcast. Welcome. Thank you, Eddie. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Hjalta Sonstein podcast. Subscribe and follow for further updates.